You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you. All right, well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our final, our final chapter in uh, Reshape, how the reality of Jesus reshapes all reality. Uh, Jesus uh, reshapes how we see every aspect of this world. And uh, tonight we're hitting our, our final one. And in typical fashion, um, in your notes, I have that this is week 12, which makes no sense, but my numbering's been off all along. So it's actually week 10. And we're going to be looking at living as, ex- as strangers and exiles in the world. So let me begin with... Um, Revelation chapter 21. I forgot my glasses, but I think I can read it. If I hold it there. Okay, here we go. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Jesus, we thank you that you reshape all of reality. Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end. And all things hold together in you. And we thank you for these weeks that we've had together as we've explored just how big you are. And so we pray that you would guide our conversation tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's interesting if, if you read um, in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia that one, there's, there's an interesting phenomenon. If you know the story, it's the story of these young kids get whisked away to another country, another land, this land called Narnia, where they encounter this lion. The lion's name is Aslan, uh, who is a Christ figure, if you know the, if you know the story. He, he does represent Jesus in, in many ways. Um, and one of the things that happens to the kids is as they make their way and as they grow up and as they encounter have more adventures with Aslan something happens and the thing that happens is that Aslan gets bigger he gets bigger and bigger and bigger and what Lewis is saying is that the more we know who Jesus is the, the bigger he is and, and one of the issues that we have I think as Christians is what um, J.B. Phillips once said is that our God is too small. Or as Mark Buchanan once said, our God is too safe. 
And he is much bigger and wilder than we realize. And uh, so in this class, that's what we've been exploring. We've been exploring just how big Jesus is. And I hope um, you've come away with, with some of that. One thought I had, just to, get, uh, just to start off, is I, is I wanted to make a comment about the Oscars. <laughs> now, and if you've been living you know, in, a, um, in, in a hut without uh, TV uh, or internet, you won't know. But a couple days ago, there's this thing called the Oscars, um, which I seldom pay attention to, except it was all over the news, this incident where a famous actor, Will Smith, slapped a famous comedian over comments that he made about, you know, the Will Smith's wife. Now, I don't want to make a comment about, you know, him hitting or anything like that. That's, that's not the point that I want to make. The point that I want to make is this. If you look, uh, if you look at your technology, if you look at your screens, and if you had just landed here from Mars and you're looking at screens and you had to make a decision, what is the most important thing that is happening on this planet? You would come across a number of stories. Well, not many. You'd come across mostly two stories. One story would be about a nation named Russia invading a nation called Ukraine. This, 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 because this does occupy a lot of attention, but nothing in compared to a, an assault by an actor against a comedian in a TV award ceremony. And if you were from Mars, you'd look at this and you would say, huh, this award ceremony this incident ranks as, as one of the greatest events that is happening on this planet today. And if you held it alongside a war in Ukraine, it would still be more important. If you held it against the fact that 42 Christians, kids, were kidnapped, by a radical Muslim group in Nigeria this past week. Well, that doesn't seem very important at all. What really matters is that this actor slapped a comedian. And this is the most important thing. And you would not be able to distinguish between the important, the trivial, and the really important. Which gets back to my point about technology all those weeks ago and that is the flattening effect of technology where you cannot distinguish what is important if you're just going by the amount of air something is getting on a screen it's hard to tell and that's what really struck me this week when i was looking at that it's like ha huh, you would never know that there was a war like what war in ukraine you know will smith slapped chris rock that's the big news Anyhow, yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, I didn't, yeah. Oh, oh, it is on, but I forgot to adjust it. 
Sorry, guys. That's not not a. Feel free. Yeah, all your comments have to be directed towards me, and that is not for any other reason than the fact I forgot to change the settings. So, um, everybody, talk to me tonight. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> See, somebody already did. <laughs> it's true. Um, sorry about that. Let me ask you this. Um, in these past ten weeks, what? when we've looked at reshape, what has stood out to you? What has stood out? What, like in all the sessions we've gone, gone through, has there anything when we've looked at how Jesus reshapes our understanding of something, is there something that stood out to you? And if so, what would that be? Again, sorry guys, you're gonna have to, if you post it, I'll repeat what is posted. <laughs> Somebody just said, hi David, for example. Um, uh, I'll just tell you what's on it. Sorry, but I, I, I didn't mean to, uh, I just forgot to, to change the, uh, the setting. But what, what stood out? Let me hear from you guys, in person and online. Yes, Maxine. Uh, the visit to Pope Francis. The what? The visit to Pope Francis the, the Vatican. Oh, okay. The indigenous leaders. Oh, okay. Well, that stands out in the news today. Yeah, for so sure. this past week. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, that, that's a big deal. Yeah. In terms of the course itself, um, what, what stands out uh, from what we've looked at in the course? I like the one about the different philosophies over time. Um, we were talking about particularly in the Enlightenment period. Oh, talking about the history of, of, of ideas and how the ideas connect with each other. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, how everyone has a story, yeah, and our story is being swept into a greater story that God is writing for this world, and we can be part of this. No, that's good, yeah, yeah. and that's actually, when I was first putting the course together, really stood out for me and really resonated with me. It's, a, it's that line that uh, Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher, says, he says, I can only... I can only know what to do if I know what story or stories I'm a part of. And uh, I think that is true. When we know what story we're part of, we have an idea of what, of what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, how power works, right? In the biblical worldview and in the world. Yeah, it's a very different understanding of power. Yeah, I remember when I learned that, it was just like, wow, yeah, that's it's such a different way of even being a leader. Like, it really does change how, how you think about leadership. Okay, let me ask you guys online. Now, just, just shout it out. You don't have, okay, something you can type it, but um, in society, the right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. That's, yeah, Jessica. Whatever the Course shows us the difference between worldview and how they differ from our Lord and Savior, it's exciting. Yeah, and, and just to see these different stories, right? The God story and how the world story works, yeah. Yeah, anything else? You can just shout it out because I can't hear you now. <laughs> That's cool, good. Well, there's lots more that we can talk about. Um, Yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to do two things right now. First, I'm going to complete our look at heaven. 
All right? Uh, what happens after you die? And we we're going to explore how we need to be he so heavenly minded that we can be of some earthly good. Uh, and then we're going to explore, you know, our different postures for what it means, to, how we are to live out our lives in this world. And so I'm going to begin with the top ten, minus one, the top nine. Uh, top nine truths that scripture teaches us about heaven. Okay. Yeah, Natalia, you, you talked about who am I and where do I come from. That's good. The picture of creation and origins was a big one. Yeah. Okay, nine truths that Scripture teaches us about heaven. Number one, heaven holds out the promise that the human story is destined to come to a wonderful end. Lord of the Rings, have you thought of an ending? Yes, several, and they're all dark and unpleasant, says Frodo. Oh, that won't do, says Bilbo. Books ought to have good endings. How would this do? And they all settle down and live together happily ever after. It will do well if it ever comes to that, said Frodo. Ah, said Sam. And where will they live? That's what I wonder. Richard Baxter, who writes the, the book on heaven, The Saints Everlasting Rest, he's a, a Puritan writer from the, um, from the 17th century. He says, The principal damning sin is to make anything besides God our end or rest. And the first true saving act is to choose God only for our end and happiness. So God is the telos. God is our destiny. And so our destiny, the human story, is going to come to a wonderful end. And that's important because it reminds us that history does not go on forever and ever. That there is a beginning and an end. And Jesus is the beginning and the end. And that helps. All shall be well as Julian of Norwich says. And so one of the challenges that we have as followers of Jesus Christ is to allow the macro to shape the micro. What do I mean by that? We have to allow the macro realities of where history is going, the bigger picture of who Jesus is, to intersect with the specific things that we go through and the decisions we make and the cars we drive and how we, and how we drive. All those tiny decisions that we make throughout the day needs to be shaped by these macro truths. And I think that's one of the challenges of the Christian We allow the macro truths of Jesus to shape our micro aspects of our lives. The second thing that we come across is, um, is at the very end, we find not an ending of the Bible. Like, you don't get to the end of the Bible and, and, and the credits roll. And you see, you know, if it's French, it says fin, uh, you know, or if it says, you know, in English, the end, you know. You don't get the end at the end of the, end of the Bible. You would expect it, because at the beginning, you get a beginning. You would expect by the time you get to Revelation 22, it's like, ah, okay, and they all lived happily ever. No. You actually, when you get to the end of the Bible, you get all new beginnings. It's all new beginnings. It's a new heaven, new earth, culture, everything is starting and is going to go on forever. And I love, again, our man C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. He says, and for this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia 
had only been the cover and title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which each chapter is better than the one before. Man, I love that quotation. So the amazing thing about the end of the Bible is you don't get an ending. God makes all things new. The third thing is this, is heaven will answer our deepest longings for happiness and satisfaction. And that's important because what the Bible uses to describe heaven, it uses words to describe heaven. And typically in the Bible, whatever language is used to describe something, uh, the language falls short. The reality is much greater than the language can describe which works both ways, because the Bible also talks about hell. And the language they use to describe probably is describing a reality that's much worse than the language could possibly capture. But the same works for heaven. And so we get these beautiful pictures of heaven. Um, but the language is, is, um, it falls short. It's, it's way better than we, we could even imagine. And we, re we read that... Um, that in, in eternal life is described in three very earthy ways. God will satisfy our thirst. To him who is thirsty, I will give the drink. Uh, I will give to drink without cost from the springs of the water of life. The language of hunger. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And even sexual desire and picture of wedding. The bridegroom is this wedding. Uh, the bridegroom in this wedding is God himself. Now, when it comes to heaven, when it comes to each, uh, new heavens, new earth, I know you have lots of questions. I have lots of questions. Um, what are some questions? So, you know, what, what happens when I die? Is my soul in the presence of Jesus? Do I have my new body when I die? Do I, am I just a disembodied soul and then I get my resurrected body? And if so, how long do I have to wait? What is it like in the interim? In my resurrected body, will I have hair? How old will I be? Um, Will I recognize family members? Will I recognize other people? Will I be able to approach C.S. Lewis and say, hey, could I chat with you for 400 years, if that's okay? Um, you know, would I be able to, would I be at the back of the line, and, you know, and I see J.R.R. Tolkien up there, and I'm like, oh, shoot, there's a lot of, it's, you know, it's like Disneyland, it's a long lineup. Um, what, so what's it going to be like, right? So there's lots of, lots of questions. And we get hints and things like that, but I, I'll just tell you, it's not clear. Scripture is not clear on, uh, on this. There's different positions and there's different ways of seeing things. But all I can say is this, is that, again, what the, the language that's used to describe the new heavens and the new earth is beautiful language. It's a language of satisfaction. And so what I usually tell people, especially when I'm doing funerals and different things, is that 
whatever you think, it's going to be better. Whatever concern you have will not be a concern. Nobody's going to get into the new heavens and new earth and go, ah, I thought it was going to be... I thought it was premillennial, not postmillennial. I thought it amillennial. I thought it, I thought it was supposed to be mid-trib, not post-trib. Nobody's going to be saying that. Nobody's going to be disappointed. And whatever we can imagine, what does it say in Ephesians? Now to him who can do more than all we ask or imagine. He can do more than all we could ask or imagine. So I can imagine, my imagination is not bad. It's still not, doesn't even come close to what heaven's going to look like. And so that's why all those, you know, movies, these kind of dystopian movies where it shows heaven is just white light and, you know, everybody wearing white robes and kind of looking the same. That looks like more like hell to me. Um, yeah, because... What, what, and that's the next point. Heaven involves the renewal of heaven and earth. It's very, very earthy. And so our future is not an escape. It is not us flying away. The new heavens and new earth are earthy. And it's, there's stuff. We have bodies. And the other thing is, and this is what I'm going to be preaching on this week. There's no chaos there. There's no chaos. There's no sea, which represents chaos. So you know what I'm preaching on this week? I don't know what I was thinking. And it, it may not go well. <laughs> but we're doing God of all things. And so the thing that I'm going to be preaching on this week is viruses. <laughs> yeah, viruses. What was I thinking? I thought, oh, that would be kind of cool, you know, viruses, because we just came out of a pandemic, and then I've been studying about viruses all week long, and I'm like, okay, this, this is way more complicated. But, so, who knows? You may want to go to town center this weekend. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, the more I study it, the more interesting it is. It's just a race against time, because Sunday is a coming. Actually, I actually have to record it on Thursday. Uh, so, like, oh, man. Um, but the thing is, What you don't find in, in the new heavens and new earth is chaos. And these are forces that, that cause disorder and destruction. A category into which you could place some deadly viruses. Anyhow, that's a picture. And, and then in, in, in the fifth thing that we see in heaven is the death of death. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. Our man, Richard Baxter, good old Puritan, he says this. I love Baxter. He says, nor is there such a thing as a pale face, a languid body, feeble joints, unable infancy, decrepit age, peccant humors, dolorous sickness, Dolorous sickness, uh, griping fears, consuming cares, nor whatsoever deserves the name of evil. Indeed, a gale of groans and sighs, a stream of tears accompanied 
us to the very gates and there bid us farewell forever. Isn't that bold? Man, those Puritans could write. But I look for Frederick Buechner in the 20th century. He says this, The worst thing isn't the last thing about the world. It's the next to last thing. The last thing is the best. It is the power from on high that comes down into the world, that wells up from the rock bottom worst of the world like a hidden spring. Can you believe it? The last best thing is the laughing deep in the hearts of the saints. Sometimes our hearts even. Yes, you are terribly loved and forgiven. Yes, you are healed. All is well. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's a union of, 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 of all the best in, in history, of, of truth, of beauty, of goodness. And heaven will preserve and celebrate the best of human culture. And we saw this. I think uh, Pastor Sam touched on this on, on the weekend. Um, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into the city. And so heaven is not this bland sameness, but it is full of culture and diversity and color and language and life. It's full. The other thing about heaven is that we will finally be home. We'll finally be home. Now we'll hear a voice. Now the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so the last thing is this. You and I should not be surprised if we catch glimpses of heaven now. Because we live in that middle period, right? We live in a period that is described as the already but not yet because Jesus has entered into this world. He has transformed this world. Our lives have been transformed. And yet we still live in a world where there's chaos and where there's sin and there's cancer and there's viruses and all sorts of things. So we live in this middling time, but there should be moments like at a sunrise or a sunset with the sound of a baby crying, or when you witness the birth of a baby, where you say, where you get a little moment, a little picture of eternity. Guy named Alvin Plantinga, guy named, he's one of the greatest philosophers <laughs> alive. He says, there's a kind of yearning, something perhaps a little like nostalgia, or perhaps a homesickness. A longing for we know not what. And we should be surprised that we experience this at different times. I'm gonna, actually, I'm going to quote it now because I just think it's so good. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote this, our, this essay called The Weight of Glory. I believe it's from The Weight of Glory. And, and he says this, and this I think captures it so well. I have it in your notes and you can follow along. So it's a longer quote, but I just think it's so powerful. Do you guys see it in your notes? It's probably a page, page ahead. This is what Lewis says. He says, In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, so he's talking about that, that. There's actually a German word for it. It's called sensup. It's a longing for home. It's this longing for, for, for heaven, right? In this speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find ourselves in, um, even now, I feel a certain shyness. 
I am almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. So he says, I'm trying to name something that's embedded in each one of, in each one of us. The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia or romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces such, with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect a laugh at ourselves. The secret which we cannot hide, cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. So we can't actually put a name to it. We're trying to describe this sense, this inner sense, maybe a sense of maybe nostalgia, but it's hard to describe. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest uh, expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if it had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only a reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It's not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of the worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, and news from a country we have never yet visited. And in one of Lewis's books, in one of the Chronicles of Narnia, I think it's the Voyage of the Dawn Cheddar, one of the young girls, Lucy, she comes across a book, and it's an interesting book. And in this book, it's a magical book, she reads the most beautiful story she's ever read. And it just overwhelms her. And she goes to read it again. She can't go back because she can't go back in pages in the book. She can only go forward. She goes, oh, it was such a beautiful story. Let me see if I can remember it. But she couldn't remember it. But throughout her life, whenever she heard a good story, she goes, oh, that's such a good story. It reminds me of something. It reminds me of something. I can't put my finger on it. And that's what Lewis is getting at. He says, you and I have these, these sense, and he says, we use words like nostalgia, but that doesn't cut it. We hear music, or we have a memory, or we have smell something, and it evokes all sorts of memories that maybe we've never even had, but a, a longing for something beyond ourselves. And these are all signposts throughout our lives that point to heaven. And I, I know that that resonates with me so much. I remember when I was younger, I would read Lord of the Rings over and over again. I loved the book. I wasn't a Christian, but I loved the book. And there's something in it. And what it was, it was this, it's this, this picture of, of, of a journey, of a pilgrimage heading somewhere. And so this is, this is what um, 
This is what I think God gives us. We get little indicators in our life that there's something more to life. Little glimpses of eternity. And you've had that, right? You've had that. You see a sunrise or you hear something and something catches your attention. Or you have a memory and it's not actually a memory, but it's, it's something that really takes hold of your heart. Anyhow. What are the implications of a worldview of this picture of, of eternal life? Well, the implications is that we, we recognize that God will make all things right. Yeah, thank you, uh, Lori. That's a good, yeah, we all have eternity in our hearts. That's good. God will make all things right. Yes, we can still fight against injustice, but we do so with an open hand recognizing that in the end, all things would be right. We are not in control. Secondly, heaven is much fuller and greater than we could ever imagine. So contrary to the great philosophers of ACDC, Poison, and Trooper, uh, the party is not below. Do you guys know those bands? No. <laughs> Good 80s bands. Um, but hell is cold and lonely. Thirdly, we need to allow the end to shape the now. Um, I remember John Newton said, you know, somebody wrote him a letter and said, I want to get into this big argument with this Arminian and I'm a Calvinist, like some doctrinal thing. And he says, all right, Newton, what should I do to get ready for this big fight? And Newton says, well, first thing you got to do is pray for the guy. Because you may disagree on Calvinism versus Arminian, whatever. He goes, but the reality is you're going to spend eternity together. So you may as well start loving each other now. Fourthly, we need to be rich unto God. And that's why, you know, we don't look at our possessions as our possessions. What do we take with us when we die? Nothing. I know people who spent their whole life just scrimping and saving and, 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 and they had so much and they could have blessed so many people and they didn't and they died and all the stuff just goes nowhere goes to the government right? so much has been good has been done in church history through those who have been generous that's one of the stories that you don't often hear, but I bet none of you have ever heard of Lady Middleton or Selina Hastings, Countess of Huntington. <laughs> These two women were basically the two key women behind a revival and the abolition movement, the ending of slavery in England. And they, were, and, and they just gave, they, they, they helped bankroll um, guys like Wilberforce and that to do what they needed to do. The other thing is this, is that uh, you, you and I can make it. That's the implication, that God will do whatever he can for us to get across the finish line. And I don't know about you, but I've seen so many people, so many Christians that have stumbled near the finish line. More and more. And they're just like, oh, I'm not, you know, I, I don't believe this anymore, or I... Or I they make stupid decisions. And one of the things that um, 
the, the Puritans emphasized over and over again was finishing well, was dying well. And uh, there's nothing, there's nothing better. And 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 I know, I know who I'm talking to in in in, in our group right now, and I know many um, spouses who have passed away because I've done funerals for them who finished well, who finished really well. So. And these, these, these encourage us, people who make it to the finish line. And the, uh, the, other, the, the other point, the other implication is this. If God is at the center of all reality, if he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, then what it does tell us is that love stands at the very center of life. And we are to be rooted and grounded in this love. So I, that's a pretty powerful. That's a pretty powerful picture, I think. And um, there's lots of questions we have. We I did a, a eight-week series on heaven, hell, and everything in between, once, and oh my, we had some fun questions. <laughs> I don't know if some of you guys remember that class. We we talked about everything. Uh, we don't have time to talk about everything. Um, but what we do know is that that picture of eternal life, you and I need to be so heavenly minded that we can be of some earthly good. We really do. And that's what Baxter says, Richard Baxter, he says, every day from the moment you wake up, you contemplate heaven. You contemplate heaven. And that'll shape how you live your life during the day. Any, uh, any questions that came out of this? I'm a little leery to open it up to questions because you're just going to ask me questions I don't know the answers to. Okay, so no questions. So uh, that's good. I, uh... <laughs> but then, yeah. Or any comments? Let's say comments. Comments are, are better. Yeah, okay, so it's a great, <laughs> you know, that's such a good question. So let's say the new heavens and the new earth occur 100,000 years from now. And, and let's say I die in, I'll be positive, in 40 years. I had a long, long life. I still have a good, you know, over 90,000 years to wait. So what do I do in those 90,000 years? before the new heavens and the new earth. Okay. What's that? I, I, I could talk to Tolkien for at least half of that, and the other half would be Lewis, yeah, and John Barrage and a few other people, yeah. Um, okay, now, what I'm going to say is my speculation, okay? So it's just my speculation. You take it with a huge pound of salt. Um, but I wonder, I wonder if after we die, if we do not step out outside of time. Yeah. You think, Philip? Yeah. Because I think we're time bound. And, and God, 
sees all of history as an eternal now. It's not like God's kind of keeping up in history. I don't think that's, I think he sees all things at once. And I wonder, and I wonder if when we die, it's, it's, you know how you lie down and you have a nap and you think, shoot, I thought I was only asleep for five minutes and three hours went by. If it's going to be something like that, it'd be like in, in the uh, twinkle of an eye, we, we, will, we will be there. Um, that's, that's, that's my, my sense, but again, I, I don't really have, I talked to some people who are really good at physics and quantum physics, and they kind of said, well, you know what, that's how time works. I'm like, okay, I, it's inside of me, but um, that would be my shot at it, and it, it would kind of make sense, um, but uh, I could be wrong. It's a grab, but I've asked that very same question, yeah? Jean. Okay, I have another question. You talked before about us having a, um, we're not just a soul with a human body. We are the whole package because matter matters. What do you, how do you reconcile that when you are getting older or if you're filled with cancer, your body is, Disappointing you. Yeah. Okay, so the picture of, of body and soul, we are body and soul, and we are an integrated one. How do we come to grips with this, with the fact that our bodies, as we get older, start to break down, get riddled with cancer, get riddled with all sorts of things? So, I would say that we need, that our bodies, our cancerous bodies are still our bodies. And, and there's different ways to approach it, right? There's different ways. We could say, this cancer is an alien and it's in me and, and it's messing me up and it's destroying my body, which it is. I mean, that's, you know, science. But it's also the me that I am is the me with cancer. The me that I am is the me that is having a hard time standing up because I'm getting old, right? That is still me. And that is me in the midst of suffering, which is still me being transformed more and more into the conformity of Christ. And so this idea that our bodies are getting old, that that is somehow an imposition upon what my body should be. I don't think so. Now, I do think our resurrected bodies are incorruptible, yes. But I think as we get older, that is still part, that is who we are, body and, we are old body and soul, right? And part of a life of discipleship is coming to grips with our bodies, including sickness within our bodies. And that is part and parcel of who I am. I remember hearing somebody saying this, who had cancer, he says, I don't look at cancer as something, like he said, I wish I didn't have it and all those sorts of things. He goes, but I don't see that as something alien. It is, it is now who part of who I am. I wish I didn't have it, but it's part, and, and, and so how I live before Jesus is, is an embodied person with cancer and a soul. Do you know what I mean? So, 
to me, that, 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 that there is certain resonance to that because it, it, it connects us to our life with Christ and transformation. Yeah, that's a really good, good question, though. But what about people seeing light at death? Yeah, I know. I've, 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 I've heard many a story of that. I know there's some in our midst who have had, um, you know, near-death experiences. And strange things happen, I think, when we're about to die. Um, but here's the thing. Somebody telling a story of, you know, I almost died and, and then this happened. And so this proves to me that there's heaven or that. What proves to me that there's, there's eternal life is that Jesus told me this, and he's actually resurrected. That's where I take my hope from. And physical phenomenon of strange things in the world, I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. But I take that with a lot of salt. But I do know that Jesus is great. Okay. Good. All right. Are we all good? I'm, I'm sure the questions are just... All right. Well, let's shift gears. Let's shift gears, and we're going to bring it home. We're going to bring it home. Uh, we're going to look at, okay, how do we live the biblical story? I just want to leave you with a couple ideas just as we conclude our time tonight. In this class, just as by way of recap, it seems like a long time ago, but we began at the beginning. We began with creation. We lo looked at the world, that the world does not exist by chance. The world is not eternal. It is not chaos, though there is chaos in it. Uh, but the world has an author who is good, who made the world good, full of abundance, and the world is sacred, but not divine. And God's creation was good. And the creation of humanity was very good. And man and woman were made in the image of God and have dignity and value. But then we hit the fall where we try to live our lives as authors of our own meaning and purpose. And so we talked about this. We talked about what happens when we try to live um, in autonomy from God and how that's connected to idolatry. Um, we talked about Jesus Christ as a climax of all history, the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Through him, he fulfills the... Um, the mission that was given to Israel, that all through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And we looked at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we showed that it vindicates, the resurrection vindicates everything Jesus taught, everything he said about himself. It was a big yes to humanity, big yes to creation. Jesus' resurrection, again, teaches us that our world is not to be ruled by fear and death, because, hey, if death is defeated, then really what do we need to worry about? There's no better way to respond to a tyrant than saying, well, you know, do your worst, because your worst is not going to be the worst, right? It declared once and for all that Jesus, and not Caesar, is Lord, and it pushed back against the reigning um, view of materialism. And scientific materialism that says what you see is what you get. And we looked at the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit, be like, wow, this is really interesting stuff out there. Holy Spirit says, no, 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 you're part of the story. Welcome. You're brought into this story. And 
then we had a lot of fun. Wasn't it fun tracing the development of ideas from the Greco-Roman world right through the medieval mindset, right into you know, the Enlightenment, into the postmodern world? But that was fun. Yes, thank you. It was. I think it's fun. Um, and then we looked at how Christianity intersects with different worldviews. And we looked at uh, materialism, we looked at politics, work, and sexuality and gender. And so much more could be said. We could spend a lot more weeks on this, but we're not. <laughs> the challenge is, is how do we live now? Okay, as you leave this place, how do you live? How do you live in light of what we've learned? Well, I think that's a million dollar question. One of the challenges we face is how do we live congruent lives? How do we live a life that is in sync with what we know to be true? That's the challenge. Uh, in responding to these challenges, I think we need to avoid three pitfalls. <laughs> okay, how do we live the Christian life? Well, here's three pitfalls we need to avoid. Three ditches. First one, we need to avoid the ditch to assimilate. And the pressure to assimilate, the pressure to blend in, is really, really strong these days. Well, it's always been strong, but especially now. Um, but we need to remember that only dead fish go with the flow, right? Um, there was a movement in the 19th century, which we never really looked at. I was just teaching in my church history class. But there's a number of um, thinkers, German theologians, guys like, um, uh, last name is uh, well, Friedrich Schleiermacher or Albrecht uh, Ritzel and and F.C. Bauer, and you know a lot of these, um, uh, and even Immanuel Kant. Um, these guys wanted to make Christianity respectable, and so they tried to make re uh, Christianity respectable by basically emptying out the meaning of Christianity and saying Christianity was all about being a very good German. The ideal Christian life was to look very German. Um, but that's the problem. And so they assimilated. And even today, the temptation to assimilate is really strong. Just blend in. Don't be making waves. You know, because Christians are not very popular right now. And so it's easy to just, you know, I'm just going to keep, keep low because I don't want too many people to know. So the danger is assimilation. The second danger is to say, let's just withdraw. And that's said, you know, I love Sunday morning because we're all together as Christians. Let's just do everything Christian. And, you know, we'll listen to Christian music, go to Christian concerts, we'll wear Christian clothes, we'll just talk about Christian things. I only work with Christians. I'm going to work in this Christian. And just circle the wagon and make everything Christian. And that way we can just talk freely and not have to worry about anything. Now, there is a danger to that. I get the sentiment because part of me wants to circle the wagons and just talk to other Christians, honestly. Um, so I get, I get that. And there may even be, according to you know, Rod Dreher, we talked about him in the Benedict Auction, this book, The Benedict Auction. He says there may even be a time for Christians to withdraw a little bit just to kind of what do we believe and then re-engage with society. So to withdraw is okay, but don't just stay in a Christian holy huddle. And our Christian ghetto, because that's not, that's not what we're called to do. And the other ditch is this. 
I guess there's only two ditches in a road, but there, and this is a weird road, there's a third ditch. Um, that is to compartmentalize. And that is, I will be totally into Jesus on Sunday, but you have no idea what I have to do at work. I can't talk about Jesus or prayer at work. I mean, you don't know the guys that I work with, right? They would just think I'm crazy. So, you know what? I'll be all Christian on Sunday, not so much through the week, but I have a small group on Thursday so I can be Christian then. Uh, I got a parent advisory committee. No, I can't be a Christian there. And so there's certain segments of my life where I can be a Christian. I can follow Jesus. But there's other segments where obviously I can't. Okay? That's the danger. Now let me ask you this. Actually, I'm going to have you... Uh, well, I'll, I'll ask it open. Um, where do you find yourself most tempted? Which ditch do you find yourself most likely to fall into? You guys write it on there or, or shout it out. So you got assimilation, um, compartmentalization, and withdrawal. Yeah. Yeah, Ray. Right. Which holiday do we go on? Do we go to travel to Europe or, or, or whatever? Yeah. Um, so how do we live as Christians? In California, like, yeah. uh, is that wrong or right? I mean, that's money that you say we could be putting into uh, missions, whatever we talk about, yeah. sacrificial giving. Yeah. Um, so Ray's asking the question, so, you know, one question that I mean. Um, Tony Campolo asked us, you know, should a Christian ever drive a BMW? Um, should we live in a big house? Should we go on these vacations? Should, or, or should we not do those sorts of things? So how do we live in the world? Do we just give up everything and have nothing? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. I think I will be addressing it later on tonight and this yeah yeah i think so because one of the yeah no i think i'll answer that if i don't remind me okay yeah no i am i'm gonna get there in my notes yeah don't worry i'll get there i will get there um assimilation would be my bent depends how weak i am at the time or how strong i am at the time yeah that's true withdraw yeah withdraw how about you guys what do you think all of them at, at, at different times, yeah? Compartmentalize? Compartmentalize is a big one, yeah. yeah. But, you know, Ray, you're bringing up an interesting point. I, I say, I will get back to this, but on each one of those, assimilation, withdrawal, and compartmentalization, there may be good times to do each of those. It is okay to be all things to all men, right? So that when you walk into, you know, a warehouse and the guys are just cursing and be like, hey, fellas, you know, don't be swearing, you know. You know, Jesus, you know, there's, you got to kind of work, understand their culture and, and, and speak the language that they understand. Uh, 
And so there are times that maybe you just need to blend in. And there are times where, you know what, I'm just overwhelmed at work. I do need to withdraw and just get with brothers and sisters in Christ and pray together. That's really important. And there's other times where it's just like where there is this compartmentalization that, you know, when we're having a board meeting and I'm working for a car company and we're talking about, you know, next quarter profits, I don't want to say, well, I think we should give all these profits to the church. What do you guys think? You know, because um, it's a business and that's probably not on the radar. And so maybe, maybe there's a place for each one. Anyhow, but I will get back to that. Anybody else? Phoebe, where, where do you, where do you fall to? Yeah. Yeah. So you do all three. Yeah. Yeah. That's, oh, that's good. No, that's fair enough. Yeah. Mm hmm. That's right. And, and that takes discernment, right? And that, and that goes back to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to discern. Like, I remember I was in a situation where. I probably should have been a little more serious. No, I know I should have been more serious. It was kind of, we're talking about serious things of faith and I was being a goof. I know it comes as a surprise, but I was, I was goofing around and, 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 and this woman looked at me and I looked at her and I said, ha, I'm just kidding. And she goes, you know what you did. Yes, I know what I did. <laughs> and, she, and she just kind of spoke and it went right to my, but she was right. Because I was goofing around in a situation where I probably shouldn't have been, and and she called me on it, and uh, it was it was a, but it was a prophetic moment. And afterwards we chatted, but uh, she yeah she she spoke just very prophetic words right into my life, and so that does require that discernment because there may come a time where you say yeah I do need to speak up. And uh, my my uh, buddy uh, Rudy who just passed away would you know. He'd be on a work, work site and somebody would yell out, holy Jesus, and, Jesus, and, and Rudy would stick his head out the window. He goes, yeah, you know, Jesus is holy. And he'd just kind of respond to them and speak the truth of the gospel to them in a very natural way. So, yeah. But don't you think we should look to scripture? Because this whole thing of the Mormon movement, to me, is a guiding principle. Because the early church, once Christ ascended, we're told to gather together to worship and pray and be equipped to be out in the world being servants. Yeah. So being salt and light. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Yes, we do need to come together. Don't uh, miss me. But it's this idea of I'm going to have nothing to do with the world's going to hell in a handbasket and I want to just circle the wagons. So we spend most of our time out in the world being servants. Yeah. Yeah, but we, but uh, yeah, we need to withdraw in order to engage. So here's 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 some metaphors, or here's some pictures that we get from Scripture. Um, here's some passages that are relevant to what we're saying. 
In John 16.33, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world, says Jesus. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Coquitlam, Port Moody, right? 1 Peter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles. Philippians 1, 20, verse 27, Whatever happens, as citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, as ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Okay? So we're, we're given these different pictures of the Christian life. One of the pictures is that we are called to be strangers and exiles. Strangers and, and exiles. And we have a sense of exile. We talked about this when we uh, walked through First Peter last year. Um, but this is not our home. That means who we are is not primarily where we are from. Canadian, Nigerian, Kenyan, Kiwi, British, French, American. Nor are we primarily what we do for a living. Business persons, professionals, managers, entrepreneurs. No, we are exiles and strangers. There should be a certain degree of awkwardness living in this world. This world, we should not be too comfortable with this world. We should love it, but we shouldn't be too comfortable. What's the vision? Well, we have to remember that we are citizens of heaven and that our ultimate allegiance and identity is found in Jesus Christ. And this makes us foreigners and strangers in a world that has turned its back on God. But we are called, like Abraham was, to be a blessing to this world. In Christ, we are to be agents of reconciliation to God. Okay? And we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, to be an ambassador, you need to be a foreigner. Okay? An ambassador, if you're an ambassador to, to China, you are a Canadian living in China representing Canada, right? And so you have to be, to be an ambassador, you have to be content to be a foreigner. That you find your identity in the fact that you do not belong. And here's the thing, if you're a foreigner in a nation, there's two ways you can be. You can be that ugly foreigner. And we've seen that. I used to work as a tour guide. I saw, saw lots of this. Um, when I used to live in China, there would always be these people in China and, you know, there'd be Americans or Canadians and I, and I, I didn't see them that often because where I lived, there were, there were very few foreigners. But every now and then I went to a city and, and, and I found, I bumped into some foreigners and uh, like fellow Canadians and, and whatnot. And often I would talk to them and all they would do is complain about China. Oh, this place is so dirty. Oh, we can't get any. There's no decent bread. There's no cheese. There's no good cups of coffee. There's no... And I'm like, go home. Why are you here? Of course it's not like home. But you don't complain about it. And these guys, they would just complain and complain. And they just show contempt to this nation. But here's the thing, you can be, as an ambassador, yes, you're a foreigner, and yes, you may miss home, you may long for home, but you don't feel resentful or trapped. 
because you are living in a strange land on purpose and you have a job to do. Right? You have a job to do. And that job is to point people to Jesus, to be reconciled to God. And that's, that's the picture that Paul gives us. And I think one of our models for this is, is Daniel. And we, we studied Daniel last year, so that was perfect. And Daniel, when he gets taken into exile, Daniel has to show what does it mean to live as an exile. And he's taught this new language, he's taught this new culture, he's taught all sorts of things. And Daniel, he learns the language, he learns the culture, but he still maintains a sense of home. He still remembers where he's from. And he, and, he, and, he, and he expresses that in different ways in the food that he's willing to eat and not eat, right? And also, um, you know, also, um, you know, just serving faithfully the Babylonian kingdom, but at the same time being faithful to God. And Daniel, I think Daniel and his friends show that, that tension really, really well. One of the things is that if we are to live lives as ambassadors, when you think about Daniel and, and, and what Paul's teaching, one of the things you need to do is that as an ambassador, um, you need to have a community. And this gets back to Maxine, what you're saying, right? Um, you need to have an ambassadorial community where you can talk to each other and say, oh, remember home? Remember home? Remember what things are like back home? Because if you live in the world and you never talk about home, you might get too comfortable here. But if you can say to somebody, you know, Gene, remember, remember what Jesus has done for us? Remember the life that he's invited us into? Do you remember the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit? Do you remember the love that he, he showed? Like, if we can remember what home is like, it helps us sustain us, sustains us in our mission. And so we need this community to <laughs> encourage each other. And that's why I say the church is so important. One of the main reasons why the church is important and why Christian friendship is so important is because every week you need to look at somebody and ask them the question, am I crazy for believing this? And the world that we live in, that the pressure is getting so, it's like, am I crazy? And I know a lot of people are just like, yeah, I'm, this, this is just nuts, I'm out. And they've walked away. And so we need to say to one another, am I crazy to believe this? Is this, is this really true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is, it, is Jesus the truth, the life, and the way? Will my life, you know, if I, even though I may pay the price at work, for following Jesus, I may pay a price financially, I may even lose my job, it's still right, isn't it? And you need people to look in your eyes and say, yes, you're not crazy, this is okay. Because I've said this before, the strategy of the evil one is to get you by yourself. Because once you're isolated, Mike, once you're all by yourself, and you got no friends, and everybody's saying this is the way of the world, and you think you're all by yourself, it's like, maybe I was crazy. This whole Christian thing doesn't really make sense. And he's got you. 
Remember Elijah, right? When Elijah was all upset, he's like, I'm the only prophet left. And then God comes in. No, there's a, actually a lot of other prophets. You're not alone in this. But Elijah was almost done because he thought, I'm the only one left. So, and the other thing we need to know is to know the mission. We need to know who we are, what we're to do, and what to say. <laughs> um, We need to be on mission. And so, again, Daniel is a good model of this. Daniel lives a life faithful to God, and yet he faithfully serves a number of kings. He really does. To the point that some of them even glorifies the kingdom of heaven. You look at Nebuchadnezzar, you look at King Darius. And so we need to live out God's purpose for this world. And what is God's purpose? His reconciliation to encourage people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. Okay? Now, the other thing that an ambassador needs to know, <laughs> an ambassador needs a community, an ambassador needs to know the mission. The other thing an ambassador needs to know is they need to learn the language. There's no sense being an ambassador and not know the language. That's why it never made sense for people when I lived in China who had lived in China for years and never learned any Chinese. I'm like, how could you live in China and not learn the language? It's just ridiculous. And so we, you and I need to learn the language. We need to be able to communicate with others. And that's why we need to be readers. We need to know what are people thinking? What are, what are issues? And Eve, I know this is something that you, you hold to very carefully. You know what people are reading, you know what the people are listening to, what, what the issues that people are facing, especially with youth. And you gotta be able to be up with this so that you can engage with them. And so many Christians are just so out of touch. Like there's nothing more cringeworthy is when a Christian tries to be cool. Oh, and a Christian tries to use new technology. This is, you know, I remember once hearing, I won't say the pastor's name, but he's an older guy. Uh, guy, well-known guy in the states. And this is okay. This is in the early 2000s. He goes, "Well, you need to know." He goes, "We got this new series coming out, and it's available. It's it's available. This with the um, they're all on they're all on cassette, and you can buy a whole set of these cassettes. And this is like early 2000s. Like, who buys cassettes? I mean, I still have a cassette player in my car, but it's just because my car is old." Um, so we need to understand the language and we need to recognize that all of mission, all of mission, the work of an ambassador is always cross-cultural. And so you need to understand the language of the culture. Now here's the problem. We think, oh, we're Canadian. We understand the language of our culture. We probably don't know it as well as we think we do. And so that's why we need to read. We need to understand what people are reading, what they're thinking, what they're watching um, in order to communicate with them. This is really, really important. And, and, and so often we get it wrong. I remember, I remember when I was a youth pastor. I was a terrible youth pastor. <laughs> like, when I taught, I was okay. But when I tried to be cool and connect with the youth, I, I struggled a little bit. And so I had to learn. So one time I, I was talking to these uh, kids 
and all, all the kids that I, I worked with, I worked in Vancouver, um, and they were all Vietnamese and Cambodian kids from the downtown east side, uh, not downtown, but the kind of Mount Pleasant area. And uh, I remember talking to them, and I'm, and I'm trying to be cool, and I'm trying to connect with them, right? And I said, uh, <laughs> I said to them, Phoebe, take notes, yeah. I said, um, I said, you know when you're at school, right, that's good, uh, and you're, um, and, and you have a locker, and you know, sometimes you put up posters in your locker, and so I don't know, you got in your locker, you got a poster of, you know, Harrison Ford, and, <laughs> and they go, Harrison Ford? I said, yeah. <laughs> like, he's old. <laughs> like, he's not as old as he is now, but he was like probably 40, but I was, you know, so that's an example of not getting the language right and not understanding the culture. But I think we need to understand the culture um, in order to be able to communicate because the Christian life, it's, it's cross-cultural work. And so, let me ask you this. In order to communicate, think about your circle of people that you connect with quite often. Let's say uh, a circle of people that are outside the church that you connect with maybe at work or in different or school or in different things. Okay, can you think of that group? What do you feel you need to know, you need to learn in order to communicate with them better? I actually want to hear from you. Like what would help you? What would, what would be something that the church could offer you to help you prepare you to engage better? Probably their fears. Their fears, to understand the, 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 the fears that we have within society and to be able to address those. So almost, a, like in a, a bit of an, an, an apologetic work, but directed towards fears. Right. Maybe if I understood people better, I'd realize obviously we all need Yeah, so to learn how to maybe interact with people in a way that can bring to the surface some of the issues that, that often we, 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 we cover up. Good. Yeah, no, that's good. What are people's hopes? Good. Yeah. Why are people agnostic? Yeah, and, and that's, that's a good one, Jessica, because a lot of people, the issue isn't like, I don't believe in God, God doesn't exist. It'd be like, hey man, if you believe in God, I don't care. Maybe he exists, it doesn't matter. And that's kind of hard. That's like, there's an old Chinese uh, expression where you, you pick up um, a greased peanut with chopsticks and it's, it's hard to get hold of an agnostic because they're just, ah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, God made, yeah, Jesus seems fine. Yeah, so does Buddha. And it's, it's really difficult, yeah. What else? What's the cool that isn't able to in this what is the core longing that society isn't able to answer in this generation? Wow, that's a very good question. Yeah, good. Just 
what do people value and what is non-negotiable for them? Yeah, and what's a deal breaker in terms of... Yeah, what's the biggest thing that prevents them from changing their worldview? That's, that's really good. Huh, that's good. Yeah. Very good. How, how to tell our own stories. And sometimes we tell, like our stories remain the same, but we emphasize different things given what we know about the person that we're speaking to, right? Yeah, and how to kind of nuance that a little bit, yeah. Yeah. That's good. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so the impact, if I can just summarize, the impact of, of, of technology and, and, and even the, the way technology isolates us and breaks down community on, and how to respond to that. Now that, I think, if I could segue a little bit, um, that actually speaks to, Ray, your question. Because if you're an ambassador, and you're trying to reach someone in the Westwood Plateau or in Burke Mountain. And you don't have a house, you don't have a car, you give away everything. Um, are you gonna be able to speak in a way that would communicate to people on Burke Mountain? Will you be a good ambassador to reach people in Burke Mountain or on Westwood Plateau. Yeah. Sure. Would you be like without without all that stuff? Yeah. Would it help if if um, if you were able to speak their language in terms of um, the work that a lot of people do in Burke Mountain or or like for. Uh, I actually don't know the work that people do in Burke Mountain, but I know, <laughs> I know that, for example, where my friend lives in Calgary, everybody on the street is in the oil business. Um, so to know, you know where most people work or what kind of industry that people are part of, would it not help to have some familiarity with that industry as well as to live in a context where you might be able to speak into their life Show some understanding. and I see a 
So I'm good to be a crack, and I can say, throw a little something in there, and I see if it gets fit. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ray, no, and I, I've, I've known you for a long time, Ray. You are an amazing uh, evangelist. And you, no, no, I'm serious. Um, now, I'm not just trying to pump up. I can, I can see Sharon nodding as well because you have a way of connecting with, with, with a lot of people. Um, you know, Ernie, you're kind of like that too. I mean, you're, you're just able to connect with so many different people. Um, and so it is a gift. There are certain demographics of people that I have a hard time connecting with. I just, I just do. And there's certain demographics of people that I can connect with uh, quite well. Um, and it's just, just the way I am. And so to get back to your question about what you can own, I think there is a, a, a question of um, Holy Spirit discernment. You know, uh, am I holding on to what I have because I, it's a sense of security or I feel... Um, more important or all those things that are not healthy or am i am, do i have what i have so that i can give away as much as i can so earn money to give away money as well as to be able to to um to live in such a way that i can have a voice into an area where there's very little gospel voice so two of the areas in the Tri-Cities that has very little gospel presence are Burke Mountain and Westwood Plateau. Those are the hardest to reach places for, for Jesus. And so to speak to people within that context, I think you need to have some kind of connection, some sort of, um, some sort of affinity um, to speak in a way where people will listen. I think that, that's, that's part of it. And it may be that you would have to, you know, have some understanding of the work that they do by, because it, it's in sync with some of the work that you do. Um, some of the things that they own, you also happen to own as well. So that's a thought on it, yeah? But you are an unusual person, Ray. <laughs> no, it's true, in a good way. Um, okay. Well, let's, uh, we're going to wrap things up. Uh, we're going to just, look, I'm going to bring us back to the Emmaus Road, because that's where we started. We started on the Emmaus Road. Let's end our time on the Emmaus Road. What are we going to walk away with? What are we going to take from this? Well, I find if we remember way back when we began uh, the Emmaus Road, we have Cleopas and his uh, friend, and they encounter this traveler on the road. They don't know it's Jesus. And Jesus asks, what's, what's the matter? And, and, and they respond, are you the only one who doesn't know what's gone on in these past days? They ask Jesus if he knew what was going on in Israel. That's kind of interesting. And in, ironically, they speak to Jesus in such a way that they think, dude, you need to open up your eyes in order to see what was going on. Um, which is very ironic because it's their eyes that needed to be opened. And sometimes we find ourselves in similar positions. We, we say, God, will you not open your eyes? Do you not know what's going on in Ukraine? Do you not know what's going on in Nigeria? We cry out, why don't you care? Can't you see what's going on? And part of this worldview course has been about this, is about, is about recognizing that God is much more active in and around us than we realize. He's much bigger than we realize. 
And I love the fact in the story of Emmaus that it's, it's, it's Jesus who first draws near to the, the, to the travelers, to Cleopas and his companion. Jesus is the one who draws near, and that's what Jesus does. He seeks the lost. Jesus draws near and he finds them confused and distressed, and he engages with them where they're at. And what does Jesus do is Jesus reshapes how they saw what took place and he places it, he frames it within the story of God in creation. In the story of God in salvation. And, and, and as Jesus explains himself, who he is in the midst of this, the response is that their hearts are burning within them. The story resonates in their soul. And Jesus explains the scriptures, how all the scriptures pointed to his coming. But they still don't see Jesus. How do they see Jesus? They only see Jesus through communion, through the breaking of bread. He was known in the breaking of the bread. Once they shared a meal together, once they had communion together, like community together, their eyes were open. And they could see it was Jesus. And they were so blown away by this. They make the seven mile journey back to Jerusalem. Uphill. <laughs> They're so excited. And it would have been so interesting to hear Jesus' story to them. But they, their, their response was is that they eagerly desired. They, their, they, their hearts were on fire. And they went right back and they shared who Jesus is. And then we know that the early church were filled with the very presence of the Holy Spirit. And they realized they were brought from outside the story into the story. And they were given the job as ambassadors. To tell the world. To reshape who Jesus is for the world. And I think that's our challenge. Our challenge is, is, is twofold. One is to have a big picture of who Jesus is. And I think Jesus is too small in, in our lives. And then to have the courage and the vision to be on mission and to tell the world about who Jesus is. And, and to show how Jesus, the reality of Jesus, intersects with every aspect of life. Every, every aspect of life, from our very identity to what we do, to how we see our work. And that's what this uh, class is all about. And so the question I want to leave you is, is this. Do you believe this? Do you believe that your life will only work as it is created to work when it's being reshaped by Jesus? Then my encouragement was, uh, is to, to leave you <laughs> I'll, I'll give you Jesus' encouragement. And these are the words that I think he says to us tonight. And we find them right at the very end of the book of Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May we live in the reality of Jesus in all we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.